0: Good evening, boys. Good evening, boys and girls. Welcome back to the Highbury Squad. It's been a while. Welcome to the summer series. We're going to have a little bit of fun. It's a mixture of football, film, TV, popular culture, and I couldn't think of a better subject to kick us off. You love Jim. He's back. And this time, he's here to really get caught with his pants down. Here we go. mind the gap between the train and the platform please stand clear of the discussion doors the next stop is Hybri squad Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, no matter where in the world you might be. Welcome to the Highbury Squad. I know that we are not broadcasting at our usual time. Um, We will be doing our eight o'clock slots for the Summer Series. Welcome to the Summer Series. It's a little bit of fun that I enjoy as well as talking about football. As you know, I'm very passionate about entertainment. It's my background and we've got some great guests coming up. To mix it all up for us, and I couldn't think of a better person to kick off the summer series than Lifelong Crystal Palace fan, writer, actor, producer, and someone who's probably got one of the best memoirs out there right now, Mr. Jim Piddock. Welcome back to the Highbury Squad.
1: Oh yeah, Sophie, nice to see you.
0: Nice to see you too. Um, you've been one very busy man uh, promoting your um, your memoir, and I have been telling our listeners that they have to have a read i mean it's got so many great anecdotes and and stories um and you've got some phenomenal i wanted to start off by sharing with them as well uh, some of the fun things people are saying about it before we kind of dive into some specifics this from seth myers jim has a big heart and a sharp wit and both are on display in the pages of this book so effing read it very classy i love that this one's my favorite actually and i've become a huge fan of russell brand um for other reasons i love his youtube channel and yeah. and the stuff he's doing on there uh, jim has done that rare thing that perhaps only michael kane and david niven have done before conjured a funny inclusive whimsical and magical tale um love that from russell brand and elizabeth mcgovern Oh, I had a bit of a crush on, I'm not going to lie, when I was younger. Uh, when I wasn't gasping or laughing my head off, I was wondering why my life is so boring compared to Jim Piddock's. I thought the same thing, Elizabeth. And this one from Hugh Bonville, love Hugh. Hilarious, passionate, beautifully told, and mem- memorably waspish, which is quintessential Hugh, I think.
1: Um, yeah.
0: You could just picture him saying that. So, Jim, how does a lad from Rochester... You know become passionate about football there's a one-man show about a goalkeeper I believe and you can correct me if I'm wrong and then find himself in the United States with literally a hundred bucks in his pocket.
1: Well uh, it was one of those weird kind of confluences of events. I'd worked for a couple of years in England in uh, weekly rep and fortnightly rep which doesn't exist anymore which is sheer madness you do a different play each week while you're rehearsing another one while you're in the the daytime um and i i'd worked uh in england for a couple of years and i was in my early 20s and um my father had just died and i was suddenly unemployed and i kind of was fairly depressed and um i remember sort of sitting in a, a bed sit uh it was in an attic Uh, Room I had a tiny, tiny room with a black and white TV, uh, watching the 1980 Academy Awards, feeling very sorry for myself. And Dustin Hoffman gave this lovely speech about how he was accepting the award on behalf of... He got it for a Tootsie. um, uh, I think... No, it was Kramer versus Kramer, saying he he was accepting the award on all struggling actors out there because this represents you as much as anyone and blah, blah, blah. And I was, of course, by the end of the speech, a a self-pitying, sobbing mess. It was an ugly sight um and soon after that i i um i thought i wanted to get away somehow and my drama school uh, the drama studio in london had opened up a branch in berkeley and so i very cheekily went to their principal and um said you know would it be okay if i directed something there i directed a couple of plays in rep while i'd, I'd done rep and, and he said well direct something here first and we'll see and um i, I did something and he fortunately offered me a job there for three months and, and I went out there just to escape for three months. And I thought, uh, I'll just take a break and, and get a different perspective on things. And I fell in love with California immediately. I mean, I just thought it was just this wonderful, open, new, beautiful place, uh, sunny. and, and um, The
0: opposite just, of England.
1: <laughs> yeah, it just felt like there was possible, endless possibilities and, and um, not so rigid a society. And I had in my back pocket when I was doing this, just directing for three months uh, and teaching a couple of classes at the school. I had this one man show that I'd seen in London about a a football goalie or soccer goalie playing a game. And and I'd loved it. And I thought I'd love to try and do it somewhere. And and I asked the writer, Peter Flannery, who was was quite well known at that time and still is, uh, if I could do it in America. And, And he said, sure, if you can find anyone crazy enough to put it on, you know, you can do it. And I took it around every theatre in San Francisco. And of course, you know, it was the 1980. And no one was interested, 1981 at that point. No one was interested in football at that point. And um, I was an unknown actor with a very British play about football. So they all turned me down quite rightly. And um, <laughs> I was about to come back and I got a call from the artistic director of one of the theatres, a small 99 seat theatre in San Francisco. And he said, our first play has fallen out. Of the season can you get the show up in 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 three four weeks and i said of course i can and i cancel my flight and i hired a great director called richard side a brit i've met out there and we got the show up and i had a a full night of 99 people on the first night because all the people i was directing at the drama school wanted to see me fall flat on my face and (laughs) fail and um the second night i had four people in the audience it was a it was an intimate experience and um they were lovely they all sat at the front and, um, <laughs> and i did the show which is incredibly energetic it's an hour and a half two 45 minute halves of non-stop action talking moving diving shouting this that the other and then i have a nervous breakdown in the course of the the, the play um and uh, it, it uh it, it, the reviews came out the following day after that second night of four people and um they were kind of dream reviews that any actor would literally die for and um the show was then it sold out for the rest of the run and then extended twice and it, and it took me to new york because a, a, a producer there had seen it i thought heard about it and wanted to do it off broadway but the day i arrived in new york um she pulled her money out of my show and put it into a musical so i was stuck in new york with just a videotape of this show and i i gave it to an agent and they sent me on an audition and um it was for George C. Scott was directing and starring in Present Laughter by George. Wow! Clark, by, um, what a Mel legend! Clark. I know, and, and and I got the part. So I was playing his valet in this. It was a nice, really nice role in this Broadway show, which became a big hit. And so I suddenly went from being uh, an unemployable and unemployed actor, uh, self-pitying actor in London, uh, with two years of crack theater under his belt to starring on Broadway uh, within a year. Uh, it was pretty much the only time my career has gone into absolute overdrive in such a short space of time. It's generally been a very steady curve upwards. That sort of tortoise and the hare kind of career. And um, so it was. It was really quite exciting. I mean, life was really coming at me fast. And, and wow! Then, you know, from there on. I never really looked back in terms of the theatre and then I sort of started again when I came to LA to do film and TV but that was that. to answer your question in a fairly long way is how I ended up uh, in America.
0: It's so so funny though that you know when some people say oh you know it's the same old story but it is in terms of I came to you know California or New York you know as an artist and I had you know tuppence and I mean you know Clooney's got a story everyone's got a story you have a story and it's it's so true because, you know, that's why I I I know that people may look at talent these days and say, oh, well, they can't complain, they make so much money and whatever. But so many and have come from, yeah. you know, absolutely nothing. And also I don't think what people realise is a large percentage of people in SAG or AFTRA are not in that high, you know, two percent bracket. They're grafters and they yeah. they slog every single day. It is not an easy industry is it Jim and, and one that if you have impatience, it's not it's just not one for you for all the kids that are listening out there.
1: Yeah it's an incredibly competitive profession. It, it always has been and it always will be. Um, I do think that um, <clears throat> right now it's more geared like the rest of the world is to people who are entrepreneurial. if you can you know direct your own film on your iPhone and get it out there, if you can you know write something that you can be in and get it out there. I think you know, in the time that I'm talking about, the early '80s, I think America was a bit more open to that kind of entrepreneurial attitude, whereas in England, I'd have probably been told to sit down and take my place in line. So, um, but I think things have changed, and I think the world has changed, and I think we've entered an entrepreneurial age. So, I would I would recommend that to anyone going into any profession is is be entrepreneurial.
0: Yeah, I I agree. Um... Now I just want to. You have to give me one George C. Scott anecdote. I know a classic one about. You know, um, I mean, he, he was definitely a drinker. But yeah. for those um, who are younger, and we do have, you know, um, a, an audience of Generation Xs and Baby Boomers and Millennials and Zers as well. Um, you, if you're younger, you probably know George C. Scott from A Christmas Carol, which is probably one of the greatest Christmas movies ever made and best Absolutely.
1: version ever made.
0: Yeah. Um, but he was quite the thespian and give me give us a george c scott story
1: well george was the first major star ever work with and he didn't like to rehearse because it impinged on his drinking time and his watching baseball time um so we would rehearse for like four or five hours a day max and, and like christine larty was in that production and um she she was from a method school of actor so she would always stop and say okay george so um what, what's my objective in this scene and and he just say to her your objective is get on the stage say your line and get the hell off (laughs) and that that would be it and then i remember the last the last night we had a uh, we closed the show on a matinee a sunday afternoon but the last evening performance is a saturday night and we had the sunday matinee the next day and we went out to gallagher's steakhouse in new york and george bought everyone dinner and i've never ever in my life seen any human being consume so much alcohol that night as that night. i mean we started late because it was after the show so we probably got there at 10 30 11 o'clock i think i left there about three maybe four and uh with the rest of the cast and i, and I was pretty worse for wear <laughs> hey.
0: and, that's not um, that's not apple juice <laughs> no,
1: my first pint of the evening at 6 i love it 6 15 here in london um so the next day, I went into the theatre and I was going to my dressing room and his door was halfway open and I heard this voice go, Jimmy, get in here. So I went in and he was sitting there in his boxers. And with George, the less clothes he had on, the more drunk he was. That was how you could <laughs> tell how drunk he was. <laughs> That's I was sitting there in his boxers and um, he started to talk to me and I couldn't understand a word he was saying. I was a phone going. I had to tell you, I'm mad at fuck and just going on and on and i realized he was drinking in his dressing room i realized he'd been up all night that much i did understand from what he was saying was that he had not been to bed (laughs) and he was drinking through the entire night in the morning sunday morning and now we were 10 to three on a sunday afternoon and he was incoherent and i went to the stage manager i quickly got out of there went to the stage manager and said we're not going to do this show you know he's incapable and he said well we kind of have to because there's an audience sitting there and the understudy's really gone home so uh we we did the show and um it was extraordinary because he didn't miss a beat not a word not a move nothing he was his performance was exactly as it had been on every other show and the rest of us were terrified it was absolutely terrifying wow but extraordinary and um i still to this day have no idea how any human being could consume that amount of alcohol and let live let alone do a show
0: unbelievable wow what an absolute legend all the way yeah. through what great memories and you yeah. um, and by the way george c scott is a baseball fan that's kind of interesting isn't it i guess he lived he, he was he lived he was living here for a while wasn't he is that how you became a baseball
1: fan he he was um He was a massive detroit tigers fan because he was from michigan so he was a big detroit tigers fan he lived at that time in um in upstate new york i believe or connecticut Uh, and then he he came out to l.a he had a place in l.a that he moved to not that long after and he died i mean probably four or five years after that Um, so it did catch up with him in the end
0: well this book has 38 fascinating chapters and correct me if I'm wrong, but you started jotting down your memoirs in 81. So I'm assuming that was with a pencil and and paper. How, how, what were you thinking at the time? I mean, a lot of people like a diary. They like to chronicle stuff. Um, your journey was already kicking off to be a fascinating yeah. one. Am I right? Did you start no. jotting things?
1: No? no, no, I didn't. No, I, I didn't scri- re- scribble anything down. I mean, I kept a diary. I've kept a diary two different years in my life, I think. I can't remember what years they were. One of them was in 1981. I did actually write a diary that year. So I kind of right. have a vivid account of that first year. And then I did it once later. But, but no, I really only started writing, and, and I, I'm not sure if I even went back to that one-year diary because it was so detailed and boring, and it was full of things like, you know, I felt crappy today. Maybe I've got a cold. Really, really dull. Stuff. <laughs> <coughs> so uh, I really only started writing it when the pandemic hit, and uh, um, it was sort of... I wanted to do a one-man show originally because I'd done this talk in Beverly Hills that people rather liked where I kind of Q&A thing, the screen actors guild in a 200 seat theater and um so i kind of came away thinking maybe i'll do a one-man show and i don't have to learn anything because i can just tell stories and and sit down now and again uh so i started that but it, it was about 10 hours long so i i realized that I couldn't <laughs> get all, all myself through that what and, and then i wrote the book
0: what's You've written so many amazing pieces. Um, we'll, we'll get stuck into some of those, but what's harder to write, you know, when you're writing about yourself and putting together a memoir versus a teleplay, you know, script, oh, film script.
1: Way, way, way harder writing about myself. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I couldn't sort of, uh, I spent, you know, a good the first 30 years of my career trying to avoid being me by, by, hiding behind characters and being a, a, a consummate or a, a constipated um, character actor uh, and and then I kind of got more comfortable playing things uh, closer to myself and actually doing some hosting and presenting of things where I was myself um, and, and writing is a similar experience I, I like kind of losing myself in someone else's story um, or a story that I'm interested in so it was quite painful writing this it was quite pulling teeth really um and I you know with a screenplay or television show I can write for eight nine hours a day but with this I could do three to four hours max and then I was my head would blow up um I found it hard I found it hard and it's also much harder writing prose writing Mm. a book than it is writing a, a screenplay which is just a specific craft so I I found it quite a struggle um that said it didn't take me much more than five months to write the first draft so that's fairly quick. Um, but I did have a lot of the stuff in my head.
0: So. Right. What, well, when that moment when, you know, I mean, when, you, when you're in the entertainment industry, it's, it's uh, we have a lot of listeners who just, they love, they're so passionate about their film and their TV. Yeah. And that moment where you actually sell something you know, someone wants to buy your material. What What yeah. was the first thing, what was that moment like when you actually sold something to a studio or a production company or?
1: It was incredibly liberating. I mean, I, I was an actor for the first 10 years of my career. Uh, yeah, 12 years. And then I, I wrote with my ex-wife. We had this uh, appalling dog that we adopted and it was just, it, it was, um, <laughs> she was, I adored her, but she was insane absolutely insane she would headbutt people she would run just madness and um she kind of destroyed our, our house and our lives um and, and we thought it was quite amusing in some way so we we wrote uh a screenplay about that or so i wrote the first draft um margaret wrote the second then we kind of did a third and we gave it to her agent she was she had encouraged me to write because she knew, could see i was getting bored just acting and um I, I had more time on my hands than when i was doing theater so I wrote that and 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 then she wrote, wrote it and we did and we sold it um for quite a lot of money and um suddenly I had this um huge amount of money in my bank account which I'd never had before in my life and um and I had a whole new career it was it was like opening a fantastic door and I was suddenly like oh this is amazing now I've got something to do and I'm not not acting and it fulfills a totally different part of my brain a different creative uh thing mm. Uh, it was really liberating, and it and I, I gave me a focus that I, has never gone away since then. That was nineteen eighty nine, nineteen
0: ninety. Well, for me, I love a lot of the stuff that you do. As you know, I mean, we talk about football a lot, and yeah. you know, um, when you were on last, uh, you know, we we talked about Ian Wright and Brighty, and and shared some of of your pictures from your your football days and of course here you are with eddie is which is oh, a, yeah. this is a, a classic picture of the cup, you. Final,
1: the cup <laughs> final with a lot of my very good friends right behind yeah. uh,
0: and here you are with eric Idle and gary lineker um, yeah.
1: at the galaxy
0: at the uh, la la galaxy game um and of course arsenal legend eddie mcgoldrick right here eddie. Uh, <laughs> and um you know, you 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 you're so you're such a champion for a lot of people, but there's also been someone I think who's been influential in your life when it comes to entertainment. And we'll get to Fred in just a minute, but Christopher and his way of working, and how much of an influence did he have on on you, Jim? Christopher Getz movies are absolutely genius, in my opinion the improvisation part of it. Was that really the catalyst? You'd done a lot of stuff, but did this just take you to another level when you worked with him? My go-to movie when I'm sick, when I'm depressed, when I'm feeling blue is best in show. It is the greatest. It's in my top 10 movies of all time. It's genius.
1: It's it's in a lot of people's top 10, which is great. Um, That was my first film with Chris. Um, And I think it changed things for me in the sense that I would, my acting career had sort of faded a bit and i was writing almost exclusively um up until that point you know the last it was the the late 90s when we shot that and um and i sort of was kind of like oh well i think it's been cancelled my acting career without mutual consent and um, <laughs> and then i got a call from eugene levy and said look we're doing this film as a follow-up to waiting for guffman and It's about a dog show and we think you you know i i've recommended you to chris because i think you'd be good for it and i I met them and and, um they're both kind of very socially shy shall we say or awkward And uh, i just sort of ended up babbling chris doesn't audition you he just meets you and he has a gut instinct whether you can do improvisation or not and i had done none really since drama school um but i gave him a tape of what some of my work and, and i left and um and I got a call on the way home saying, you know, um, I'd love you to be in the film. Um, so I said, yeah, sure. Um, uh, and, and that was my first. And, and it really, um, I mean, it's the first of, I think, five five things I've done with Chris, two of which I've written with him, um, series for HBO called Family Tree and, and BBC, uh, and then a film called Mascots for, for Netflix, and then three other films before I wrote with him. And, and I think what it did for me, best in show, um, i'd never played a straight man in a comedy kind of duo before i'd always been the clown so it taught me how to do that and mm. to be economically funny and economical with my acting because i had to be very real to make people think i was a real dog show host uh commentator rather and and and, and let fred run with it because fred is a genius at what he does and you can't compete with that and i knew that right away and so i i sort of sat right road shotgun and went I've got to be, I've got to make him funnier and also get a few laughs myself. And and the straighter I am and the more I react rather than try and counter him with by being funny myself, the better it will be for this chemistry. And 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 luckily it, it was it was wonderful the chemistry. And I um when I saw the film, which we I mean, we shot all our stuff because I was doing another show in London. I, I had to I had one day we were supposed to have three but we did it in one because we ran out of time and, and and i can't believe that that amount of film has ever ended up in a film i mean from one day because we're in this whole second half of the movie um so it's about 45 minutes in and out in and out mm-hmm. all of it. And, and it was a great revelation to me because i did realize that you can be you can be rather than act with a capital a you just have to kind of ride with it uh, and that was a real revelation and I think my acting got better after that because I was less, I was more subtle and more, I, I did more with my reactions and my face and my wordlessly th- that I realized you don't have to speak to be funny or you don't have to talk in improvisation, you can react and um so it was a a big learning thing for me i've occasionally fallen off the wagon and given grotesquely over-the-top performances (laughs) but um but that was that was a great one for me and 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 it was a great kind of being part of that family that improvisational family for um about 15 years
0: does it baffle you sometimes with As a publicist, it always sometimes I always used to think, wow, you know, you think this movie is going to be huge, and then you know you get those little sleeper hits and stuff, and then you have actors in performances where they they feel like you know this is life's work, and then you do a, a role, and then you probably get more recognized, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, or something like this, which is kind of a classic iconic scene in Lethal Weapon. Yes. Then you know, maybe some other projects. I mean, yeah. does it does it still baffle you to this day about the impact like this particular scene had?
1: Well I, I don't I don't know if it baffles me. I mean God I look young in that photo but <laughs> that my, that
0: first... I have another one. We'll get to independence yeah, day.
1: <laughs> independence day yeah I mean Lethal Weapon was my first ever film. Um, and it was odd because that line I had to to, to Danny Glover and, and Joe Pesci uh, when they he says why can't he emigrate South Africa Danny Glover and I said because you're Blick. <laughs> uh, that became the catchphrase of the movie which so it was odd for my first movie to be the guy who delivered the catchphrase uh, and I had one scene um, yeah people still do yell that line at me now and again and then by the way they usually are black themselves um <laughs> which is great it's a great icebreaker uh, so i mean and it bridges generations I mean, i've had young rappers who i normally not know what to say you know <laughs> young american rapper than me i mean hello what are we going to talk about i love uh, it though and then and then you know the the ice is broken when you meet them and someone's they look at you and go put your blick and that's <sighs> off you go
0: that's very um, cool
1: so so, yeah, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, that best in show probably because that did transcend most of Chris's stuff from cult to being mainstream almost. And 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 oddly, an episode of Friends. I did one episode of Friends that, that has been seen in billions of countries. Well, that's not true because there aren't billions of countries. It's been seen in hundreds of countries, billions of people, billions of people um, and, and that strangely is and again it's multi-generational so so like two generations beyond what who first saw it have now seen it and, and people go oh yeah you and friends i remember in that episode and so that's weird to me that's more weird than lethal weapon because lethal weapon and independence day were the two biggest films of their respective years they were the two biggest box office films so that doesn't surprise me that much even though right. i didn't have a massive amount to do in either one um but friends does surprise me i mean it doesn't now because i figured it out why but but when people kept saying friends you know i was like really okay yeah uh, well bizarre.
0: it's not easy um you know moving from film to film or tv show and uh writing and as great of, as your experiences have been and i think i'll let people read the book but um you did work on independence day i actually worked with uh Roland Emmerich on the day after tomorrow. Oh yeah, um, which uh, yeah, he was he was a uh, he was a, a nice director to to work with. You you do call a couple people out in the book, and I think you guys should read it. But feel free to share any stories. And I do have to ask you about whether or not you were surprised with what happened at the Academy Awards and
1: yeah. Mr. Yeah. Smith. Well, first of all, I should say that one of the people I, I do give it to in the book, and by the way, it's mostly a very positive book, and I, I have good things to say about mm-hmm. people and some people who have bad reputations, and I say I didn't experience that at all. Um, Roland Emmerich was definitely not one of them. I loved him. He was just like an enthusiastic, mad German teacher who was bouncing around with enthusiasm and energy. Yeah. Um, I I, I uh, There's a chapter in the book uh, which I start by saying there are 10 A-list actors I've worked with uh, nine I loved, and, um, and one was uh, four asterisks word. And uh, if I can find, I can actually list, list, the if I've got a copy right here, uh, just happened to have a copy here. Um, the 10 are Michael Caine, Angela Lansbury, Anthony Hopkins, Sharon Stone, Tom Hanks, Morgan Fairchild, Sasha Baron Cohen, Naomi Campbell, Kevin Hart and Faye, Dunaway. So of those nine I really liked, And one was a four asterisk word and you can pick whatever word you like for that and i'll see you next tuesday um (laughs) and that chapter has obviously got quite a lot of attention because i do name names and um that's unusual in these type of biographies uh or memoirs and the person who ends up being and i'm not going to give that away because that is a spoiler alert yeah um really did deserve to get it with both barrels um there was I think three people I really, really stick it to in the book. Um, and as I say, there are some people in that list who people would say, well, it's got to be them because they, they have a terrible reputation. And I rehabilitate their reputation by saying how great they were. So I do feel this book is ultimately extremely positive and, and it's, a, it's a romp through four decades in Hollywood, not a, not a hatchet job, although I definitely pull the hammer when I need to. And, and absolutely, I don't just eviscerate people, I urinate on their corpse afterwards. <laughs> um, and one of, them, one of them's dead, so they can't sue me. And um, one of them it remains a mystery, but I'll tell you the other because people are, won't be that surprised by it. When I first got to Hollywood, I auditioned for a show called Seinfeld, which was a huge, huge show at the time. And uh, I I went in for this role which is supposed to be British and I was in my early thirties and they clearly didn't know what they want because there was actors all ages. There was a a British actor in his sixties. And I went into the room and there was Larry David, the show's creator at his desk, it was in his office. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld was there and some producers and the casting director. And As I started the scene reading with the casting director, um, Larry David put his feet up on the desk, opened a newspaper and was completely obscured from my view. And I was obscured from his view. And he remained that way for the entire audition. Now, it threw me big time. However, being a consummate professional, I soldiered on, thanks mostly to Jerry Seinfeld and some of the others laughing at what I was doing, and got to the end and bolted out of there. I was really fuming as I went left the studio, went to my car. And then the older actor who was in the waiting room came out, the guy in his 60s, and he was bright red in the face and clearly upset, visibly upset. And I sort of said, Are you okay? And he said, told me the exact same thing had happened to him. Now, I can only conclude that Larry David, who people love in, in um you know, what's that show of his uh, your enthusiasm, which is a you know it's very good, and he's extraordinarily talented. I can't watch it because of my experience with him, but he's either i concluded he had to be either the biggest asshole on the planet solution a or solution b the biggest asshole. On the planet. <laughs> uh, and i have not changed my mind since yeah fair I mean, enough he's one of the people I, I give it to both barrels
0: yeah fair enough um okay so a uh, uh, a good experience you had before. I've got. I've got some. Uh, need to find out some favourites of yours. But there's a yeah. couple of things I do want to touch on. Um, comedians that I've worked with aren't necessarily, You, you, you're very unique in terms of my experience. Uh, I looked after Robin Williams for a bit and uh, on a couple of films, and I found him to be a very s- sad person. And of course, you know that we we all know about his struggles and just some other comedians that are a little darker in real life than or maybe you know then not as outgoing perhaps um you seem to have this incredible balance you know um which i find unique in terms of my experiences have you found that i mean when you've you've worked with some super talented people and of course people like eugene livy and and, and Chris Gesson and, and some others. Uh, also, yeah. Kevin Hart, you mentioned, um, you know, you. What,
1: ha, am I off, off base or no, do you, have no, you found I, that in your career? First of all, thank you for that. But um, I think the big difference is between being a comedian and a comic actor. I'm, I'm an actor, first and foremost. Um, I actually do probably as much, if not more, drama than comedy these days. Um, but I, I was always an actor. And that's a different breed than a stand-up comedian. Stand-up comedians are by and large manic depressives or bipolar. You know, they they really are the go to extremes. I mean, it's an incredibly vulnerable thing to do to stand up and put yourself on on display. Although, having said that, I just wrote a book that completely puts myself on display. But um, <laughs> but most actors, I would say, you know, two-thirds of the actors I've ever worked with are introverts and I'm in that group, believe it or not. And and a third are natural extroverts who just are, are like a, a, a bit, they're not like stand-up comedians, they're just more people who are quite happy just showing off. And, um, and I don't know why that is. I think, you know, a lot of people become actors because it's the only way they can be seen and heard if they're that shy or that introverted. And certainly I would say that's probably the case for me. Uh, and a lot of actors I know and a lot are very insecure. but I do know some people who are find the right balance. It's hard. I think for me, the sanity structure was having a life outside of it. I wanted to lead a normal life. I never bought into the factory being my whole life, even though LA is a factory town. And, and I think, and I remember a guy at university saying, you know you're very good at what you're acting if you do that for, for a profession, don't stop playing football because that'll keep you sane. And, and it's true. He went on to be a great sports uh, journalist. Um, and, and, and I think it's true. And I think that, that I've, I've played football for 50 something years and I still play on Saturdays or Sundays, uh, some weekends. And that kept me sane because most of the people I've played with uh, aren't involved in show business. Some, very few are. Some are in the music business in LA but most of the guys I play with are just regular guys who have normal jobs. And that was very healthy for me and my continued passion for Crystal Palace and staying involved in as a fan, as well as an amateur player. Mm-hmm. I think the football kept me real and, and it kept me away from becoming uh, too obsessive because, you know, it's very easy to get obsessive for me uh, and for most people who choose vocational lives. Yeah. So I think that football kept me on the straight and narrow, to be
0: honest. I can I could totally see see that. There's um I think it's it kind of grounds us back to where we started and yeah. you know takes you back to those places. Although being an Arsenal fan these days will drive anyone to uh insanity, that's well, for sure. But a lifetime.
1: Well, Oops, <laughs> try a lifetime of this this. <laughs>
0: um speaking of a guy who has it together i i have to ask you this because i got a few uh notes from some of our listeners wanting to know they're such huge fans of course and i i think it was your project that really had people take up and take notice of him more as an actor you cannot leave this show today without letting people know if this dude is legit
1: yeah um i've I uh, had heard great things about him uh, when, before we cast him in the film. Um, and when I went on set, uh, I wasn't particularly involved in the production of it because I, I was, wrote the story for it and was executive producer. And I, I was doing something else. So I just went up to the set for a few days. And I, when I arrived, um, I hadn't met Dwayne and he stopped the shooting and, and gathered everybody together the cast and the crew. It's a lot of people, like a couple of hundred people. And said, I just want you to know that this is the man who's responsible for you being here, and introduced me that way. Now, no one in my life has ever done that for a writer on the set of a movie. I mean, the writer on a movie is sort of, I mean, I was an executive producer too, so I had a bit more kind of clout, but a writer is just please don't come anywhere near the set. And if you do, just stay by the craft services and fill your face with food. The devil,
0: craft services are the devil. Devils, (laughs)
1: devil's work. Um, It's different in television, you're the king as a writer producer, but I I just thought that was so classy and so way and above the call of duty that uh, he just went shooting up in my estimation even more. And he was lovely in the film. He was fantastic in the film, as was Julie Andrews and Billy Crystal and Steve Merchant and Seth MacFarlane and all the other great, um, Ashley Judd, there's so many good people in that film. It's a lovely yeah, film. It's very sweet film that's been seen by millions of people the world over. And it just fills me with pride because that film came from an idea I had talking to my daughter who was 11 at the time over dinner. And, and I wanted to write a film about Santa Claus and we, we talked a bit and I realised they'd all been done. And so I said, what about the tooth fairy? And she said, it's a great idea, dad. And we talked over dinner and and I wrote down what we talked about the next day and then pitched it to a producer and and we sold it. And it became this big kind of thing. It, it, it was a very smooth journey, actually, to, to production. And, and I, it, to this day, I feel a great pride because obviously it's a much more mainstream than the normal stuff I do and very... Mm-hmm you know, it's not going to win any Academy Awards, but I think it's a really lovely film. I remember Steve Merchant at the premiere, we were talking afterwards and he said, you'd have to be very hard of heart not to like this film. It's it's lovely, it's very sweet. It's an old fashioned, what the sort of film Disney used to make, uh, even though it was 20th Century Fox. Uh, And and I feel very proud of that film in the sense that, that that one idea that I had over dinner with my daughter ended up, employing two three hundred people and making 130 million at the box office and infinitely more in ancillary markets and it's
0: an That's evergreen very, it's an it's what we call i think an evergreen title
1: absolutely absolutely and and yeah, and yeah as i say it's never going to win any awards but I, I do feel a sense of sort of pride that 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 happened that film
0: yeah, yeah. well one more that um a couple of folks wrote that wanted to know because you were talking about the cast of um, Tooth Fairy there. Um, another film that you were in that uh, is, is watched by many, um, Jason Segel, Emily Blunt, Kevin Hart, Chris uh, Pratt, Dakota Johnson, Reese Evans. Um, I, pr- I always probably bastardize his last name. Uh, the last, the, the, the five-year engagement. Um, again, another good experience for you oh, on that, on that, that one good. with that cast?
1: Fabulous. Uh, I I have had many many wonderful actors uh, actresses play my wife or daughter in movies. Many many, but that movie contained probably my favourite two. It was Jackie Weaver played my ex-wife actually, and I adore Jackie. Wow. She's this wonderful Australian actress who's just brilliant, and and Emily Blunt. Uh, I I just adore. I adore her. I adore her work, I adore her, she's just wonderful. And she was she, she was just the best uh, theater of theater, the film daughter one could ever have. And there's, on, on my website, I have a comedy reel and a drama reel, and it's worth watching the comedy reel to see the outtakes of our first scene together in that film. Um, <laughs> there's no clips in the film, it's just that outtakes of this one scene that never made it to film. Because we just had this relationship from day one, where she couldn't look me in the eye and I couldn't look her in the eye without us just bursting out laughing, and it's it's so exciting when that happens. It's such a weird kind of soul thing that you both share some weird thing, um, and you know I'm old enough to be a, probably a, no I'm old enough to be a father, not a grandfather, but but it was just this lovely kind of dynamic, and and I, and. I, I, it still makes me laugh when I watch those outtakes because she's so adorable and she just made me laugh so much and, 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 and it, it's, uh, that was a wonderful experience, that film. And, and she is is great and Jason I've worked with twice and, and he's equally as adorable in a different way. He's just such a great guy uh, and Nick Stoller, the director, is, is wonderful. It was, it was a fabulous experience and my only sadness is that we were in it a lot more the parents but they kind of made it a much younger movie and so david paymer and and um and jackie myself uh, and mimi um uh mimi kennedy who was the, the, we were the four parents uh the three of them all have academy award nominations i was the old man out. I don't <laughs> and, and, and it was just so great to be in the, those people's company and we all liked each other very much and sadly, you know, they did sort of make it much more of a younger person's movie, so we got <laughs> a bit cut out of the movie. Uh, and actually, Kevin, Kevin was in that movie, and then Kevin, I did this film with Kevin where I played his butler, which was which was great.
0: Yeah, um, and if you haven't seen Family Tree and What About Dick, uh, and...
1: What About Dick um, is on Netflix, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's on on Netflix. Um, and Blind Manor you're in, which a lot of my, Cousins, yeah. love very dark, very dark.
1: yeah, that looks a bit more like me because it wasn't so long ago <laughs>
0: um, you know, you can catch Jim on a, in on a on a bunch of really just fantastic projects. Um, and you know, I'm gonna get you out on some quick fire ones, but before I do, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I know that family is really important to you, and you did say yeah. that you know. And the book is—you guys will love the book, Caught with Your Pants Down, um, and Tales from Hollywood. It's available on Amazon in um, on Kindle, uh, audio book, hardcover. Go grab a copy today; you will not regret it. It's just brilliant. Um, it's it's a really enjoyable read and listen. And well, you do have doing, some.
1: Sorry, while you're doing your sales pitch, I just want to interrupt all yeah. the money from the book goes to I've, three different charities.
0: And look, I've got it at the bottom Jim, to let everyone know because yeah, I do have had either. it scrolling on the there bottom. There we go.
1: The Fantastic. Bottom. Sorry. I'm I'm I yeah, can't no, really no. It at the same time.
0: I wanted yeah. you to let everyone know exactly where the money's going.
1: Yeah. No, that you can see it down there on the on yep. the little screen account. Yeah. So, yep. Yeah, that that's. Um, I don't make a cent out of this, so uh, there's a good reason to buy it. Don't, don't
0: absolutely, a- yeah, and well. an incredible charities. But there is there are some poignant moments in the book, you know. Again, where I feel like you humanize um, what you know. The 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 different part I don't think that people see a lot of the time is whether you're a sports star or whether you're a film actor. You know, whether we're working for a corporation, we're all human at the end of the day. And you talk about family. Um, and you have an incredible, dare I say, better half. I think you would agree with that. Uh, who
1: half, <laughs> I call her. who her. comes
0: from, you know, Hollywood royalty herself. Uh, just before we have a little bit of fun on the exit here, talk to me about the importance of that. And again, I think it goes back to what you were saying. Football kind of saved you, but also, you know, being part of this relationship and what it is meant to you to have yeah. that stability.
1: Well, I think, the book became oddly it had a sort of subtext which i only discovered when i was writing it um, amidst all the kind of anecdotes and funny stories and sad stories um in there I, I i realized it was partly a journey of a search for family um even though i i, I grew up in a quite a stable family it, it, it sort of and family tree the show i did with chris sort of reflects that kind of obsession with mine of of understanding what family means and I'm proud to say now I believe I have kind of four families: my immediate family, which is Annie Cusack and my daughter Ali; um, my blood family, my Crystal Palace family, and my showbiz family. So I have four wonderful families. Um, I think, I think that 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 you're right. I mean, the centre of the book, they are two chapters right in the middle about the death of a great friend of mine who was like a brother to me. Um, at the very age, uh, in Hollywood, he died in a fire, uh, one of the horrible fires that we get out there. Um, And he was 41, Uh, it was ridiculous. Um, So um, I think those two chapters, and then the following one about adopting my daughter, um, at very short notice, extraordinary kind of adoption story that I think is (laughs) fairly unique. Uh, And the relationship with my daughter, which is so wonderful and enduring. and then finding really the true love of my life, I think, at the age of fifty-five, uh, in, in Annie, um, I, I think that that those are the stories in the book that I hope make it transcend it being a showbiz mm-hmm. memoir. I, don't, I didn't want it to be a showbiz memoir, firstly because my name doesn't sell it. People kind of know roughly who I am if they see my face, and or they know what I've done, but they don't really know my name, and so so i wanted it to be a book for everybody and and that's one of the joys so far of having written it is that it seems to have struck a chord with people who aren't in show business which i love and i and i think that that is an important part of the book as you say and, and family becomes the story in a sense of, of the book and, and my i think you will make a great film history, yeah. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I do think I should do the one man show at some point and, I, and I'm actually working it right now and it's become um, less about Hollywood and much more about the search for family. And, and the, the basically all the casts I've ever been in were sort of surrogate families for me and how I, I was always searching for that. So I think that that's kind of, I think that's kind of an interesting arena for a lot of people.
0: Love that family is, and I love how you you break down the family and then how and what it can be in different ways. Uh, and yeah. I think that's it's really not about special, blood.
1: yeah. It's not about blood or about, and an, an, you know, um, bloodlines, it's nothing to do with that.
0: All right, um, let's get you out on yeah. these quick five bits. Um, yeah. now, what is your favorite film, Mr. Piddock?
1: Well. Whenever people do this to me, I'm always really. You hate annoying. it, don't you? <laughs> well, I, I never narrow it down to one. I prevaricate, I sit on the fence, and I'll give you a couple of alternatives. But with the film, I mean, there are so many great films that have been made. But my personal favorite that I've probably watched more than any other film is With Nail and I, um, oh. which is a small, well, it's not really a cult film anymore because it's become such a widely known cult film. Uh, It's a big favorite among a lot of comedians and comic actors, Steve Martin, I think it's one of his favorite films. And it it is a film made in the 80s, mid 80s. And I think it's a work of genius. Um, And uh, With Nail and I is the most quotable film imaginable. It's not everybody's cup of tea, but With Nail and I would be my answer to that one.
0: All right, Uh, TV show?
1: Uh, I think one of the greatest shows ever was M.A.S.H. I think it's probably the greatest sitcom ever. Um, but that said, I'm going to give you a couple of alternatives, favourites. I think Freaks and Geeks, which was short-lived, was one of the greatest series I've ever seen. And a show I was in called Party Down, which was created by some of the same people from Freaks and Geeks. Party Down is, I think, genius. And that is coming back. They've revived that. Oh, revived. that's
0: fantastic. Because it was just the season, wasn't it? Was it one? Uh, no, I
1: think it was two, three, two or three, two seasons, maybe, maybe three. So Freaks and Geeks was one season. But Party Down, I think, did three seasons.
0: Okay. Um, favourite band?
1: Um, the Clash, probably, followed by U2 and M- Mot the Hoople, a particular favourite. But, but The Clash, I would say, I think for me, covered so many areas.
0: Uh, concert?
1: Bruce Springsteen uh, with The Who followed shortly. Whoa. I, yeah.
0: Nice. Favourite city in the world?
1: Well, the two that I live in, Los Angeles and London.
0: Love it. Uh, favourite drink? Are you drinking it right now?
1: <laughs> no, but I like beer, and I have a beer in the summer a lot uh, at this time. Um, red wine is my go-to.
0: Awesome. Your favourite Hollywood scandal?
1: Well, scandal. Hollywood scandals aren't what they used to be. I think the no. great, greatest one, and it's ho- not great, it's horrible, it took place in 1921 when Fatty Arbuckle, first of all, any scandal involving an actor comedian called Fatty Arbuckle is amusing. (laughs) Um, There the amusement ends because he was charged in 1921 with the rape and murder of a woman called Virginia Rappe, which is odd, considering the subject matter. And it was a party in San Francisco. And this woman that was alleged that he raped her, and, and that she died because it's, it's awful. This story. I don't know why I'm telling this. She died because he was so fat. He ruptured her bladder when he was raping her, and she died from peritonitis from the ruptured bladder. And he was charged with murder. And uh, it was a big scandal. It was the biggest scandal probably in Hollywood history. And he was found not guilty actually. And the jury even offered him an apology because they, the the, the witness who claimed this, was sort of a notorious liar and conwoman and um he was issued, issued an apology um, and i'm not going to say whether he's guilty or not but his re- career never recovered and he died at the age of 40 something shortly afterwards wow I don't, I don't think they make scandals like that anymore in hollywood i mean will smith slapping uh slapping uh it's Chris, Chris Chris Rock. Rock not exactly comparable you know to that 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 really for me takes a biscuit
0: well, my Hugh Grant on Hollywood Boulevard is boring compared to that.
1: That's a pretty good, no, really good one. But that's what I good... loved about what, that was that Hugh just went straight on to the talk shows and just coped to it. He just coped oh, to really? it. Totally. I loved that about him. And I thought it was really brave and really smart. And, and he just said, okay, have a good laugh at me and, and let's get it out of the way. And, his, of course, he's recovered from that
0: completely recovered from that like gloriously and talk about really getting caught with one's pants down that was yeah uh, yeah that was that was definitely hugh right a uh, few football ones to end on we have to uh yeah, let's see yeah. a game you never saw but wish you can transport yourself to any this, game any era any time domestic or international
1: this is easy i mean people would say for me because it was when i fell in, fell in love with football the 1966 world cup final but I saw it on television, so I was there in some shape. The big one for me is my, It was, took place on my birthday, my 34th birthday in 1990, the 8th of April, 1990, when Crystal Palace played in the semi-final of the FA Cup against Liverpool, having lost to Liverpool 9-0 earlier in that season, and we won 4-3 in extra time. That has to be, first of all, the greatest Palace game in the history of the club in terms of drama and not its overall importance, but for most people's memory. And I unfortunately couldn't go to that. uh, And I didn't even see it on television. I woke up because it was at four o'clock in the morning in L.A. And I woke up to a message on my answering machine with a a friend screaming, Palace fans screaming. We won, we can't fucking believe that. We won, we won. That was insane. <laughs> and then I've watched that game at two or three times since, at least, uh, on, on DVD. And that was probably Palace's finest moment in terms of really sort of pulling all the stops out and producing the biggest surprise. In, in that, was,
0: that was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Mine would be yes. the 79 FA Cup, Arsenal, Man United, Alan Sunderland. Oh, really? Yeah. I would love to have been there. I begged what, my dad to take me but
1: uh what about the game at Liverpool when Michael Thomas scored that
0: There you know it's up for grabs now That um, would be
1: if I was an Arsenal fan that would be for me pretty well up there
0: Yeah I mean it's a legendary night I feel like I've lived it you know I think we all feel like we've lived it obviously being there's a completely different experience I mean Kevin was sitting Uh, with the away fans uh, in the crowd and listening to his stories from it was unbelievable there's something about that fa cup final thinking it was all over um and you know just magic and both of them i mean brilliant you know the, the 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 european run that kev that team that kev played in as well another another great moment but okay chris look into your crystal football mr Piddock um, we won't talk about whether or not Arsenal's season was a failure or whatever. If we choked, um, none of that. Who has the better season next season, Arsenal or Crystal Palace?
1: Well, I think you'd always favour Arsenal to have a better season. You know, I mean, they're, they're a much bigger club. Um, they got much many more resources. So I would never bet uh, on Arsenal ending in below Palace next season. Um, I do think Palace have the potential to, to become a top-half team and challenge for a place in Europe. So we could be challenging for Europa spots, but I think Arsenal will be challenging for, for the Champions League. Um, it really depends you know, on a number of factors, obviously what happens in the summer, recruitment, and then um, whether Arteta can kind of kick on and, and, and sort of take this team to another level and whether Vieira can sort of build from what he's done in his first season. So it's a tough one to call. I mean, I think the gap between the two clubs is closed for sure. It's not nearly as wide as it used to be. Um, evident from the two games this last season where where we took you know, four points um, and probably should have taken six.
0: You should have taken six. Yeah. Uh,
1: and, 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 and oddly, we played better against Arsenal than a lot of other much worse teams. So yeah, that, that 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 would be a tough one to call. Yeah, that'd
0: be tough. Well, enjoy the rest of your summer. Um, thank, you. thank you so much for spending a good hour with me talking about your amazing book. Uh, don't forget guys, you can grab it today. Uh, Caught with my pants down and other tales from a life in Hollywood, Mr. Jim Piddock. Uh, it's available oh, cool. on hardcover, audiobook, or Kindle and all of the proceeds from the book go to the BAFTA Um, Access for All program uh, in the US, um, Palace for Life Foundation, and of course, uh, something that's close to Jim's heart, um, the aid for Ukrainian refugees as well. You're a good man, Mr. Piddock. Thank Thank you so much. It's a lovely
1: lovely hour to spend with you. And um, and please, if you do buy the book, uh, rate it on Amazon because that'll help their algorithms and raise even more money for these lovely charities. It was a absolute delight as always and um uh have a great summer yourself and and isn't it nice just to relax and not be stressed out every week yeah isn't it it nice just just... for three weeks and then we get bored and we say when's the season exactly (laughs) we start the next month at least and then and then worry about next season
0: We shall. And uh, to those listening on iTunes, Spotify, um, uh, thank you for tuning in. And those who've tuned in on replay as well, thanks so much, guys. We'll see you tomorrow night, 8 o'clock, back to our usual time with Emin Ayaga, who will be talking about his love for the Arsenal women, Arsenal Football Club, and, of course, his music career too. He may even play something for you. Until then, we'll see you tomorrow. mind the gap between the train and the platform please stand clear of the discussion doors the next stop is Highbury squad